I mean, on one level, I think we're actually going to beat extractive degenerative industry at its own game because, mm-hmm. at least in the example of the food space, um, agroforestry is more profitable than chemical industrial agriculture. From ESPM 155 AC Studios in Berkeley, California, this is The Hoptastic Voyage, a show where we bring you a taste of the current craft beer industry. We're shaking up the yeast on craft breweries. Are their business models rich and full-bodied, or have they gone bad? Are they sustainable? Are their models replicable for other craft industries? So join us on this voyage to find out. We're your hosts, Byron, Jordan, Shane, and Ben. And on today's show, we explore other hop and craft industries to Tim Richards' dry farm sprouted almond butter. Small batch is blown up. On today's episode, we explore other industries that are experiencing the small batch craft phenomenon. According to Forbes and Inc. magazine, consumer preferences are rapidly shifting towards smaller artisanal brands, where quality and purpose matter more than price tag. Yet, as we've seen with many microbrewery operations, small does not always mean more sustainable. How is it this trend is affecting other food industries? And how can small companies contribute to a better food system? In the past five years since Tim started Lossford Stone Ground, they've gone from home kitchen operation to fully integrated supply chain with backing from Impact's startup incubator, Food System 6. By using unpasteurized nuts sprouting in Santa Cruz Mountain spring water and stone grinding at low heat, the food is so alive it dances on your tongue, and it makes people feel so good they want to dance too. Tim sees his company as one of many in this trend towards artisanal small batch deliciousness in the food system. Yeah, I think it's happening in our industry too. You know, there's a lot of tiny nut butter companies popping up all over the place. Um, I think that's beautiful. I think that the more variety and regionality and diversity in the space that we have, the better. I think, you know, it's a little bit, it's not quite like beer because um, fermentation just adds so much more dimensions to how the product is produced. Right. But, but, you know, you can ferment almonds and like we have done a fermented almond butter and I think there's so much more room in the nut butter space to get like to make it like wine, cheese, and chocolate. Um, hmm. And I hope to be one of the players in that drive towards a more specialty kind of industry uh, that's like full of its own type of connoisseurs that are like tasting the different almonds from the district, the different terroirs, and like you know <laughs> educating people about. Oh well, this comes from the Basque region in Spain, and this comes from right. <laughs> <laughs> Yet the Philosopher's Stone isn't just another small company trying to make bougie food. Tim created this company with a deep, deep mission. Yep, that's it. I mean, I never thought I'd be running a food business, but I've been an activist for over eleven years, and I just feel like business is one of the most powerful ways I've found to bring my vision for the world into being. So what is Tim fighting for? What is this mission that he's trying to achieve through entrepreneurship? I want to, I want to actually create the best, most nourishing 
food products that are that are serving the flourishing of people and planet. So, you know, that's I think a lot of organic food companies will share the same philosophy about wanting to create the most nourishing possible food for the consumer. But I think the other level of our philosophy and mission is making sure that not only are the humans that we serve getting the highest quality, most nourishing food to promote their flourishing, but also everything that our business touches should become healthier and more vibrant, vital, flourishing, happy as a result of our business's interaction with that entity, whether it's a microorganism or a plant or a sheep or a worker in the field or a truck driver bringing the stuff from one place to another. Basically, our goal is to create flourishing for all organisms and all ecosystems on planet Earth. One might think to themselves, God damn, that sounds good. Sign me up. One might also think, how the hell could this be possible? So it's all about using trees in the ag- agriculture so that you don't have to deforest in order to grow food. Right. So you're just flipping the model from deforestation to grow farms into tr- uh, forests that are farms. As Tim puts it, you reforest by refarming. And by reforesting, you're putting lots of carbon in the soil and creating healthy, healthy soil and healthy, healthy ecosystems. But the gill is far beyond that. Not only from a carbon perspective, which is important, but it's actually not the most important thing. I recently got my mind blown by this guy, Walter Jane. He's a soil Mm. scientist in Australia. And he's like an advisor to the UN and all this kind of stuff. And he's basically talking about how uh, greenhouse gases, like all the different elements that combine contribute to greenhouse gas dynamic um, carbon, carbon dioxide is only like 3%. And right. like water vapor is like 60 to 80%. Yep. And so like basically in order to, control the cooling dynamics of the planet most effectively. We need to have water vapor working in our favor. And right now it's not because of urban heat island effect and also um, like agricultural heat island effect when you don't, when you have bare soil. Right. So his whole thing is you, we got to create soil sponges where the soil can actually um, sequester not only carbon, but actually more importantly, water into the soil and become a, a uh, water holding sponge, basically. Right. And then once we have that baseline of healthy soil, we need to reforest. And by reforesting, we're actually bolstering what's called the small water cycle. And that's, mm. that's basically planting trees that um, evapotranspirate moisture in the atmosphere and then um, seed not only water, but also bacteria that become clouds. And that's what creates rain. So you can actually reforest reverse desertification and like create rain where there wasn't rain before just by doing this process. And that's like the the most effective way to um, influence the water dynamics of the greenhouse gas effect, which is like the most effective cooling cooling mechanism for climate change. So this guy is just like totally blown my mind. And he's basically illustrating the point that yes, we need, we need agroforestry because of carbon sequestration, but 
the bigger reason that we need it is because of the water dynamics. So we got to put the water back in the soil and regenerate life systems. How can business be a part of this? What kind of supply chains do we need? And what kind of supply chains do we have at the Philosopher's Stone? Uh, we were recently down in Ecuador and Peru and went down there in December, January to visit some of our farms. And our farms down there are already implementing a lot of this agroforestry work. So, for example, you might be on an orchard, a cacao orchard, but you can't tell if you're on an orchard or in the jungle because on the on the orchard, they include all kinds of tall canopy trees that are typically used for hardwood um, that provide like a nice top layer, maybe 150 foot canopy. And then below that, you'll have taller trees like maybe bananas or papayas. And then below that, you actually have the cacao trees. It's more of like an understory tree. They're not that tall. They're not that big. Mm. And then, you know, you'll have other types of um, like legumes and shrubs and ground covers. And so you basically feel like you're in the jungle. And the farmers down there, you know, they're really into this style of agriculture because they live in a lush, verdant rainforest and they want to conserve the rainforest. You know, they don't want to see it cut down for anything, whether it's, you know, growing more cacao or whatever the reason. So they really have this conservation ethic and they're really into regenerative agriculture. So they've actually created their own system of rating how regenerative a given cacao farm is. And it can basically be anywhere from R1, which is like the farmer goes to a regenerative ag workshop, they're interested in it and they want to learn more, all the way up to R5, which is, you know, the, the farmer has put in terracing on their property to capture all the water and sink it into the soil. Um, they've created wildlife habitat on their farm so that the animals can actually have migration pathways, not only within their own farm, but sometimes between farms. They'll create wildlife uh, corridors. Wow. Um, yeah, they'll, they'll do cool soil amendments, um, basically adding life to the soil. Um, basically, every regenerative practice you can think of would be like an R5 farm. And so basically, they've got this internal system they've created to talk about how regenerative a given cacao farm is. And now the problem is we need to figure out how to incentivize more farmers in the co-op to want to get to this R5 top regenerative level. Because mm-hmm. right now, there's no incentive, whether you're an R1 and an R5 or not even in the regenerative system, you're going to get paid the same price. Whether I mean, as long as it's organic, fair trade, you know, these are, these are the main things right now that are driving price differences is the organic and fair trade certifications. Right. Um, so, of course, we want to, we're buying organic fair trade cacao, but in order to go beyond that, we actually need to incentivize the regenerative practices. And so we're working with the cooperative there to say, hey, um, I basically went up to one of the farmers who is an R5 farmer and I said, are you making a living? Like, are you making a good living at this? And she was like, well, in order to be thriving, I would basically need double the price that I'm getting right now. So I was like, wow. Okay, this is organic, fair trade cacao that we're buying. And she's telling me she's only making 50% of what she needs to thrive economically. Something's wrong with this picture. So I'm working with the cooperative to figure out how we can actually pay her double and make it work for the whole system. From our end, it actually works out. I did the numbers and 
we can pay her, we can pay double the amount for, well, let me rephrase that. We can pay the amount that will result in her getting double and still have it completely work within our pricing structure. Wow. So that's, that's basically how we're looking to incentivize the regenerative production practices towards agroforestry by paying a premium, what we're calling a regenerative premium. Um, and yeah, that, that takes a lot of coordination because it hasn't really been done before and people are like still, you know, just trying to figure out how to make that work. Right. But, um, that's, that's basically the model because then as soon as that farmer gets paid double for doing mm-hmm. R5 practices, that creates a ripple effect, not only through the entire cooperative that they're a part of, but this cooperative is actually part of a larger cooperative made of five other co-ops. And it's going to send a signal to that entire economic system of, hey, if you grow it this way, you're going to make double. And it's going to make a huge regional economic impact, which will have a huge regional ecological impact. Right. So companies on a mission can create these supply chains that regenerate the earth. But what about companies that don't care about it? What about companies that only care about profits? I mean, on one level, I think we're actually going to beat extractive degenerative industry at its own game because Mm -hmm. at least in the example of the food space, um, agroforestry is more profitable than chemical industrial agriculture. It's, it creates um, more income opportunities for the farmer. So they have, a resilient livelihood that's not just based on one monocrop that they have to spray consistently in order for it to stay healthy and produce. We right. have a multitude of different crops of different layers. So if there's any anything that affects one level of the system and like happens to wipe out their tomatoes or whatever, they're not screwed. They have their avocados and their almonds and like all the other things that they're growing in the orchard to buffer their income. Mm. And you know, by by having a resilient ecosystem as the basis of their economic model, it also makes their economic model more resilient. And a lot wow. of studies that I can't quote very well but exist are proving that having healthier soil actually makes actually increases yields on a farm. So if you if you focus your management style on feeding the health of the soil rather than um, just extracting as much like monetary value as you can out of it, you're actually going to make more money. And so that's the right. cool part. It's like, we don't, you know, we're going to beat extractive industry as own game for that reason. But not only that, it's kind of like, it, I think we're just making a, a more fun party. Like people are just going <laughs> to like feel so much healthier and happier and be so much more stoked on life. And like, if you could come to a regenerative farm and experience it, like that's going to change your life. You're never going to forget that. And I think the more that we, create those systems um, in our supply webs and then opportunities to do, you know, storytelling through video and also through visitation. I think that people are going to start, you know, feeling and tasting and experiencing the regenerative difference and being like, yeah, that's what I want. You know, and it's a no brainer. Like you can, you can take someone like you could go to Gabe Brown's farm in North Dakota, for example, and he's got this epic, holistically managed grassland ranch that he manages and like he goes to edge of his property and he's like now look at here you can see on that side of the fence that's my neighbor's property and well that's chemically fallowed and you can kind of tell all the grass is dead and there's nothing really growing nothing really living over there 
Now look on my side of the fence, you see 14 different species of grass and vetch and clover and all this other stuff growing, native perennial grasses. And you put your hand down the soil, it's black with carbon. And this is just a living system. And he's like, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure where I know what my I'm, I know where I want my food to come from. <laughs> it's like, yeah, of course. You're gonna if you show someone a model of flourishing life versus like de- decaying death, then of course they're gonna want to choose the more verdant natural option. So 100%. I don't I don't think there's really any competition between the two if you put them side by side. Right. So this agroforest ecology system seems like a win-win. Who are the innovators that are leading this innovation? We're at the forefront of change. I got my mind completely blown by this guy, Reginaldo, at, at the Region 18 conference. And he's basically doing chicken-based agroforestry systems. Huh. He's, raising, he's raising these chickens that are... His main thing is chickens, right? He's He's got a, a poultry and an egg industry that he's doing. But the context in which he's raising his his poultry and his eggs is in agroforestry systems. Huh. So basically, he's completely obviating the need for any corn or soy because these birds are free-ranging in agroforestry farms. So they're not only getting, you know, pecking at, like, bugs in the soil and grass and, like, fruits in the trees that fall. Um, so they're, they're basically, it's like regenerative chicken stewardship. And he, he has some pretty mind blowing numbers about how much more profitable his system was compared to traditional chicken raising. And he made the point like, Hey, all we have to do is make the case to farmers that this is the best way to raise chickens. And we can single handedly stop the corn and soy industry because it's something like, I think it's like 99% or something ridiculous of corn boys. It's like grown for feed. And if you don't need to grow that stuff because the animals are in these different systems that are making the animals more healthier, making the farmers more profitable, and, you know, just has all these other co-benefits, you can literally just turn out the lights on those degenerative industries. Boom. Saving the world one chicken at a time. So I see how the incentives are there for the farmers. But what about the consumer-facing companies? Do small businesses have the money to pay the premiums for these types of services? Do big corporations have an advantage over small companies like Philosopher's Stone? Uh, Yes and no. Uh, Yes, because we don't have as much money to just do whatever we want with, so we have to be more scrappy and focus on the bottom line to survive as a business. But at the same time, if we choose to be the most sustainable nut butter company on earth, then we have more leeway to focus on that because we're so small. So, you know what I mean? Like, right. Uh, if I mean, we're we're kind of like, I guess we're we're forced to focus on the existing options more because we don't have the money to just create our own supply chain out of nothing. We have to go with the existing options. Mm-hmm. But if there are existing options that are sustainable or regenerative that we can choose, which there are, and I would I would argue that there always are, no matter what scale you are. You know, I think it's total bullshit whenever any company says organic and local when available. Like, 
No, dude, it's always available. Maybe not local, but like organic is readily available globally. And it, as long as you're like honest with yourself, you'll see that. So being small and scrappy gives you the freedom to pursue a mission and commit to it. But being big and powerful gives you the resources to make real impact. How can these mission-based small companies influence the big ones to really tilt the needle? What comes to mind is General Mills, um, which is one of the most valuable and oldest food companies in America. Mm-hmm. It's a 150-year-old company. And forget you know how many billions of dollars it's worth. Right. At, least six, at least six billion, but um, anyways, oldest, biggest food company. They purchased Annie's, uh, which is an organic brand in Berkeley. And, right. You know, Annie's is um, basically forcing General Mills to look at doing things more regeneratively. And it's actually been a pretty good story of um, an acquisition that's working out well in terms of a company's mission being preserved. Um, really? It is, yeah. I, I would encourage you to look into what Annie's is doing. Um, they're they're talking a lot about soil health and regenerative agriculture. And at the recent Expo West in both Baltimore and Anaheim, um, sorry, Expo East in Baltimore, Expo West in Anaheim, um, they had their whole booth at this trade show was like a picture of soil and just like a bunch of monologues about how important it is and why it matters. And hmm. they're, they're producing these like new regenerative products that are coming from these specific farmers in Montana. They're, you know, they're basically, they're really telling the story of regeneration and they're, they're actually starting to create metrics around what that means. And so they've got their own like regenerative standard that they've published on their website. And, you know, this is all, this is all supported by General Mills, of course, because GM owns it. But GM actually has said, like, yeah, of course, we're the oldest food company in the world. We are in America. We've been around for 150 years. If we want to be around for another 150 years, then, like, we better get with the program and, like, right. do what, you know, do what needs to be done to survive. Right, right. So, so it's just it, shifting from to this long-term, long-term perspective. Yeah. Or, I mean, even in the short term, right? Like, right. Climate is changing. It's like disasters are happening all around us. We're paying, you know, billions of dollars in disaster recovery from hurricanes and floods and fires. And, you know, everyone's starting to get hit by these disasters in different ways. And so in the short term, we, we're starting to see like, oh shit, this is a real problem. Um, we better act on it. So Annie makes some creamy, delicious, sustainable mac and cheese and gets acquired. They keep their mission of being regenerative. But is this just a fluke? How does the Philosopher's Stone fit into this equation? Well, I don't even know if climate change is what needs to move the needle for them. Like there's other things that they're going to have to do for their survival as a corporation, such as cater to millennials. (laughs) Right. And the fact is that millennials want regenerative products, whether or not they've necessarily given it that language. 
study after study shows that they want to support socially conscious mission-driven brands. So in order for these giant megalithic food companies to stay alive economically, they have to start purchasing brands that are, you know, economically and ecologically responsible um, and socially responsible, so I would say. Um, so, yeah, that's that's where brands like mine come in, where we're we're kind of on the vanguard and the cutting edge of being the most ethical and ecological companies that we can possibly be at our small scale. And as we grow in market share, grow in popularity, grow in, you know, the public eye, um, we're going to become valuable acquisition targets for these huge companies. And it's up to us um, to basically preserve our mission through our corporate charters, through our the corporate structures that we choose, so that if we do choose to sell out to one of these bigger players, they can't corrupt it because regeneration's in the DNA of the business model. And not only the business mm-hmm. model, but also the brand and the whole way the supply chain is set up and everything. So we're kind of like these little, <laughs> these tiny little microorganisms that are like forcing the giant, you know, creatures to start shifting. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be that that parasite that that jumps into the into the mouse and causes it to run in front of the cat, you know? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it can reproduce in the cat. <laughs> That's it. With growing awareness and a dire need to reverse climate change. Seems like the wind is at the back of small companies trying to heal the world like philosophers stone grass. Talking to Tim, it's impossible not to be infected with his passion and optimism in creating a beautiful future. A huge thanks to Tim for his time and inspiration, and a huge thanks to Kathy and all the listeners with a passion for cracking a cold one. Until next class project, the Hoptastic Voyage is out! Our show today was produced by myself, Ben Ye, Byron Lowe, Jordan Sushar, Shane Wright, music help from Ben Tiso of Ben Sound. Get royalty-free music at bensound.com. A special thanks to Professor Kathy DeMaster and her team of incredible graduate student instructors, Adam Kalo, Aide Guzman, Marjana Peterson-Rockney, Myra Montenegro, Robert Parks, and Laura Driscoll. See you next episode on Fantastic Voyage. Thank you.